Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 7 through 10, uh, which we read in our reading plan this last week. It's not too late to get involved in our Fellowship of the Spirit Sword reading plan where we're reading through the New Testament. And I know that if you were reading with us this last week, this chapter would have caught your attention as it does mine. It's chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verses 7 through 10. It reads like this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. I remember... When I was just starting out as a preacher and I was asked to give a message to a college gathering and I asked Audrey what I should preach about and she said she'd like to hear what the Bible said about contentment. And I hadn't thought about it much then and so I thought I'd like to hear that too. And so I prepared for that and uh, through that preparation, my eyes were open to reality in a whole new way. I still have my notes. I just, I looked over it this week and I I don't think I quite did it justice in that message. It wasn't very good uh, sermon, but Audrey was very encouraging anyway. She's always been a great companion. But it was, it was, that was the beginning of something for me. The beginning of an integral aspect of my worldview. Mainly that contentment is both possible and good. And we live in a world where contentment is viewed as either a nice sounding impossibility or even as something to be rejected as bad. It used to be viewed as a virtue, but it's moved to being either a pipe dream or a vice. Some say, sure, it'd be nice to get to a place where I could be content. I'm just too anxious. Or I just haven't achieved what I need to achieve yet. Or the world is too broken. Or my life is too hard and bad. And others say, you shouldn't even be content. You should be ambitious. You shouldn't be content, you should be angry. You shouldn't be content, you should be radical. You shouldn't be content, you should want more from life. And contentment is left in the dust of the past, a forsaken relic of a bygone era. The satirical newspaper, The Onion, once had an article about this. They wrote about a fictional man, an unambitious 29-year-old loser named Michael Husmer, who leads an enjoyable and fulfilling life still lives in his hometown and has no desire to leave. His childhood friend David Gorman said of the unaspiring, completely gratified do-nothing, I've known Mike my whole life. He's a good guy, but it's pretty pathetic that he's still living on the same street he grew up on and experiencing a deep sense of personal satisfaction. 
He's nearly 30 years old, living in the exact same town he was born in, working at the same small-time job, and is extremely contented in all aspects of his home and professional lives. It's really sad. Additionally, pointing to the intimate, enduring connections he's developed with his wife, parents, siblings, and neighbors, sources reported that Husmer's life is pretty humiliating on multiple levels. Husmer's ordinary life is debt-free, and he's perfectly content to stay put. He doesn't care about impressing total strangers every day as he climbs the corporate ladder when he can invest in the lives of those closest to him. He doesn't have a thousand friends on Facebook, just a close family and circle of friends in town. I'm just glad I got out of there and didn't end up like Mike, said Husmer's cousin Amy Amory Martin, 33, an attorney at a large law firm who hasn't seen Husmer, her closest childhood playmate, for nearly six years. The last thing I'd ever want is to have a loving family nearby, feel a sense of pleasure when reflecting on my life, and be the big failure that everyone runs into when they visit home once a year for the holidays. The Onion hit the nail on the head with how ridiculous people have become in their longing for self-importance, for money, for status, for influence, to make an impact. Until recently, the word impact was usually negative, like brace for impact, and not usually used as a verb. But our worldview comes out in our language usage, and now impact as a positive verb has become ubiquitous. But impact is a a quick, concentrated force. Is that really what we want? Is that what we are to be? When Jesus described his kingdom in decidedly different terms, like seeds going into the ground and slowly growing into a mighty tree, rooted and patient, we want to be forceful and efficient like machines when we ought to be fruitful and peaceful like trees. In our culture, discontentment is often portrayed as the key to a meaningful life. Like in the opening scene of Beauty and the Beast, Belle is bemoaning her idyllic French town. She belts out, there must be more than this provincial life. And as, good as, as much as I love a good kid's story, this is something they've done too many times where protagonists start from a place of discontentment which is then vindicated by the ensuing adventure. Discontentment is valorized in our day. And it's coddled and it's catered to. Even much of our political and social discourse is, is covetousness masquerading as justice. Much of our lives are lived keeping up with the Joneses always looking for something better, for something more, a better job, a better house, a better spouse, a better church, a better friend. And our lack of peace is coddled as a quirk of our identity. But we must get back to our scriptures and call out discontentment for what it is. One of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Watson, he wrote a book called The Art of Divine Contentment. And I'll lean on him for a bit because he says what I want to say, but so much better than I could say it. And in the introduction, he, says, he starts by saying, having seriously considered the great dishonors done to Almighty God, as well as the prejudice which doth accrue to our own selves by the sin of discontent, it did at first put me on to the study of this subject. Discontent is to the soul as a disease is to the body. It puts it out of temper and doth much hinder its regular and sublime motions heavenward. 
it, it's like Watson says, we should seriously, we should be like him. We should seriously consider the great dishonors done to Almighty God by the sin of discontent, as well as the injuries it does to our own self. He's right. It's like a disease. And like a disease, it spreads. Watson calls it leprosy of the soul. And I love this next quote because in his old English, he uses the word saucily to describe how we condescendingly tell what God, God what's best for us. So listen for that. He says, O Christian, who art overspread with this fretting leprosy, thou carriest the man of sin about thee, for thou settest thyself above God, as thou though were wiser than he would saucily prescribe him what condition is best for thee. Oh, this devil of discontent, listen to this, which whomsoever it possesses, it makes his heart a little hell. Look that truth in the face and feel it. Whoever possesses this devil of discontent makes his heart a little hell. And once we see the evil of discontentment, we may begin to see the glory of contentment. It's not something to be disregarded. It really is glorious. Watson, again, with one of my favorite quotes, I think about a lot because it led me to pray this for so many people. When I, just personally, when I feel, when I really love someone and I feel my heart drawn to pray for them, I often find myself praying for their contentment. And as I do, I sometimes think of this quote. So uh, he says this, For my part, I know not any ornament in religion that doth more bespangle a Christian or glitter in the eye of God and man than this of contentment. This is the true philosopher's stone which turns all to gold. This is the curious enamel and embroidery of the heart which makes Christ's spouse all glorious within. How should every Christian be ambitious to wear such a sparkling diamond? If there be a blessed life before we come at heaven, it is the contented life. I love that so much. Nothing glitters in the eye of God and man like contentment. If there be a blessed life this side of heaven, it is the contented life. Watson described contentment as the crystal streams of joy and peace running together in our souls. This is why for our benediction, at the end of the service, the second of the first half of the year we did, uh, Romans 15, 13, when we started choosing a, a scripture for that prayer over the congregation, we chose that passage where Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Filled with joy and peace in believing, that is contentment. It's beautiful and wonderful and to be desired. We should aspire to wear such a sparkling diamond, as Watson says. But I know that once it's granted that contentment is good, then there's still a second great obstacle in our path, which is that many think it's simply out of reach. It's impossible. And so the next thing I have to tell you is that it is possible. Paul's life shows that to be true. And this is so incredibly hopeful if we are open to it because so often we think we cannot be content in our situation. But if someone asks you point blank, do you think there's ever been anyone in a situation like yours who's been content? You'd usually be forced to say yes, if you're being honest. And that simple fact demonstrates that such a thing is possible. Paul was content. And his life and his teaching not only show us that it is possible, but also show us how it is possible. 
And before we dive into that, we need to first look at what contentment is and what it is not. What it means, what it doesn't mean. That's why this passage is so helpful, because it clears up some of our sloppy thinking. So let's examine uh, what Paul calls his thorn in the flesh, okay? We don't know exactly what he means by his thorn in the flesh, or, um, or all the details of that. But we knew, do know some important details that tell us all we need to know about it, okay? So we, we know that at least three important things. First is, we know that it's something unpleasant enough that he very much wanted it gone. Because he says he prayed earnestly that God would take it away. He pleaded, he said. And second, it seems most likely that it's been with him for 14 years at this point. Since he said it came in conjunction with his revelations. And those revelations, he says, were 14 years ago. If you look up a few verses. So this is a long-term sustained thorn. And the third thing we know is that it humbled him in a specific way of keeping him from conceit. So it's a humiliating, long-term, deeply unpleasant condition. And with this in mind, he says he's content. And so we learn from the first point that contentment does not mean that you wouldn't change anything about your condition if God provided the opportunity to do so. That's a misunderstanding of contentment. Paul prayed three times, which is probably a symbolic superlative number, like when he talked about his visions taking him to the third heaven, or when the, the angels in Isaiah sing, holy, holy, holy. He's, he's saying he really prayed for God to take this thorn. So again, contentment is not that you wouldn't change anything if given the opportunity. Instead, it's that you can find joy and peace in your present condition, whether God changes things or not. And that you are willing for him to take your story down whichever path he wills. Christian contentment says, sure, I might change this or that if it were up to me. But I recognize it's not up to me. Amen. Ultimately, it's up to someone better than me. And if I am here in this state, it is not by accident. This is my first point about contentment. It requires a God-filled perspective on life. A God-centered, God-directed view of everything. There, there's some more things that I think we can learn this from about Paul's thorn that we haven't looked at yet because we described the nature of his thorn, but not its source and its purpose. Meaning, where did it come from and why? These questions lead us down a very interesting path because Paul describes his thorn how? If you look at verse 7, he, sa he says that it was a messenger of Satan to harass him in verse 7. So it came from Satan. But both at the beginning and the end of that verse where he says that, he says that the purpose of the thorn was to keep him from becoming conceited, to humble him, which is a desire of God, not of Satan. God is the one who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and Satan wants to fill us with pride because he go, knows it goes before a fall. So which is it? Is it from God as a tool to humble his apostle? Or is it from Satan to harass him? And Paul's answer is yes. This is how Paul gained contentment. Because it cannot be overstated for us Christians how important this is for us to grasp that God and Satan are not equal and opposite forces. God is so good and so powerful that he can even use the works of Satan to subvert Satan's own evil purposes. 
and work for his own glorious and good purposes. This is how Paul thought about the world. Like Jeremiah in Lamentations, a book, as the title suggests, is full of lament, crying out to God about the evil and brokenness around. And in the middle of that book, he says this. I'm going to read you several verses because we need to hear this perspective that's become so foreign to us. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord commanded it? It is, not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. This is the biblical perspective. It's the perspective of the cross of Christ, which is central to our faith. That whatever our condition is, it is not outside the control of God's sovereignty. And he is at work in it, in all of it. We must believe this deep in our bones if we have any hope of true contentment. In our text from last week that Pastor Tim preached on, 2 Corinthians 4, I love it. It, it, Paul says, we are afflicted in every way. There's his condition. And then he says, but not crushed. There's his contentment. He says, perplexed. There's his condition. But not driven to despair. There's his contentment. And listen to this one. Persecuted. There's his condition. But not forsaken. There's his contentment not forsaken. He knows God is with him in all of it and for him. He says in a beautiful passage in Romans, all things are from him and through him and to him. This is the perspective that brings contentment. We are usually not like Jeremiah and Paul. We don't think it's good to wait on the Lord. We want to force open doors that we want to go through because we don't really believe that God works the way he says he works or we don't care because we not only need to know that God is in control, we need to love that God is in control. We need to experience the glorious grace of Christ that makes us happy to entrust all the details of our life into his hands. This is the power of contentment. Because after Paul prayed for the removal of the thorn, he received an answer. God did not remove the thorn. But instead said in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that word sufficient in the Greek, it's uh, uh, usually translated to be content. Archeo. God said to his beloved Paul, My grace can make you content even with hardships, these hardships that I've given you, because through your weakness, my power will be complete. That word perfect or complete is talking about coming to its appointed goal. It's, it's 
purpose, without missing anything or lacking anything. This was Paul's driving aim in life. In all that he did, his supreme hope of his life was that he would be a vessel of God's grace, a signpost to God's glory, an instrument in God's hands to be used for his purposes. So such a promise that God would use even his weaknesses or especially his weaknesses for this was inspiring and a galvanizing promise for Paul. But here's the key thing. For us, to, for it to have the same effect on us as it did on Paul, we must have the same desire Paul had. The reason we have so much trouble being content is that we want the wrong things. Do you long for God's power to be perfected or your own? Do you want God to be shown as great and wise or yourself to be shown as smart and interesting? Do you want to prosper or do you want God's kingdom to prosper? If you have the holy hopes of the Apostle Paul, then you can have great contentment even with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. For when Christians are weak, then we are strong. Because God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. But this means we have to stop thinking God's power is perfected in power and the power of man. We've got to break the habit of thinking God's power is displayed in prosperity. We've assumed the perspective of the world that we are only winning when we're winning on their terms, the ways they want to win. But we have different categories of victory. We have different metrics for success. We have different ambitions for our lives. And we must remember this, maybe at this point, reclaim this Christian perspective. This is the way out of the pit of discontent. And Paul's response to this promise clears up another misconception about contentment. That some think of contentment as just getting by, just being okay with stuff. But after God says, my grace can make you content because I am at work in your weaknesses, Paul responds, responds not with resignation, not with his bland milk toast. Okay, resignation to his fate. No, he says in the second half of verse 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me all the more gladly. And then the next verse he says, where he says he's content with that increasingly difficult list, the word that the ESV translates as content, yours may say delight or take pleasure. It's the same word that the father spoke over Jesus at his baptism. It's a strong word of joy and satisfaction. This is how we ought to think of contentment. Paul's not just okay with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. He rejoices in them. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And I'm praying God gives us the faith to believe it. Amen. We can have this kind of contentment. Because the same thing driving and empowering Paul is powering us. God's grace. His grace is not just sufficient for Paul, it is sufficient for you. Amen. You have what you need. Grace in the Bible is always used to communicate at least two things. Undeservedness and God's presence. 
These two things are what unite the different ways grace is talked about in the scriptures because it's often talked about in the context of salvation and forgiveness. And that's what many of us think of, such as Romans 3.24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 5.15, uh, 5, if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded uh, for many. So, but, as, but as you read through the scriptures, that's not the only way it's talked about. Often, grace is not just pardon, but power to live this Christian life, the life we're called to live. Such as in 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And the same truth lies behind these seemingly different uses of grace. The fact that God draws near to us and draws us near to himself, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own overflowing love. His presence is both our pardon and our power. His loving presence is infinitely more than we deserve and infinitely more than enough to save us and keep saving us. Grace is the greatest gift because it is the undeserved gift of, of God, of his very self. Grace is God with us to save us and satisfy us and strengthen us and sustain us. When God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, he's saying, I am sufficient for you. Amen. And you're not earning my, my presence. You're not earning my power. I'm giving myself to you. And it's, I'm not giving myself to you in a way that will exalt you because as I change you and perfect you, that's not even what you will want anymore. Your new holy heart wants me to be exalted as your God. And that's how I will bless you in a way that exalts me and not you. That will become your greatest all-satisfying joy in life. But it will bring a thorn and this is because God is after your greatest good. He's not settling for slight happiness, for a facade of happiness. He wants something more for you. He, he knows that the happiest people are the humblest people. What was Paul's thorn for again? Remember? Do you remember what the verse said? It was to humble him. He had these amazing revelations you can read about earlier in the chapter and that these revelations he knows would have been a temptation for him toward pride. And pride is a killjoy. You can only have the facade of happiness when you're steeped in pride because it always wants more and will eat you alive. And so God loved Paul too much. I mean, that's why he gave him those revelations in the first place. So he wasn't going to let them ruin him. So with the revelations... He gave a thorn to humble him. To truly be content, we must be humbled. G.K. Chesterton once wrote a short little fairy tale as the introduction to his book, The uh, Tremendous Trifles. 
And in the story, two boys spend most of their time in their uh, front garden, and they're approached by a fairy who offers to give them whatever they want. And the older boy abruptly explained that he long wished to be a giant, who could, that he might stride across continents and oceans and visit Niagara or the Himalayas in an afternoon dinner stroll. And so the fairy waved his wand, and in an instant, the boy's home with its front garden was like a tiny doll's house at the boy's colossal feet. And he went striding away with his head above the clouds to visit Niagara and the Himalayas. But when he came to the Himalayas, he found that they were quite small and silly looking, like the little rocks in the garden. And when he found Niagara, it was no bigger than the tap turned on in the bathroom. And he wandered around the world for several minutes trying to find something really large and finding everything small. Till in sheer boredom, he lay down on four or five prairies and fell asleep. Meanwhile, the other boy made the exact opposite request. He said he had long wished to be a pygmy about a half an inch high. And of course, he immediately became one. When the transformation was over, he found himself in the midst of an immense plain covered with a tall green jungle and above which at intervals rose strange trees with a head like the sun in symbolic pictures with gigantic rays of silver and a huge heart of gold. Toward the middle of this prairie stood up a mountain of such romantic and impossible shape, yet of such stony height and dominance that it looked like some incident of the end of the world. And far away on the faint horizon, he could see the line of another forest, taller and yet more mystical. He set out on his adventures across that colored plain, and he has not come to the end of it yet. And he ends that essay with one of my favorite quotes, The world will never starve for want of wonders but only for want of wonder. And the point of Chesterton's parable is that the more you exalt yourself, the more you will take things for granted. And the more you humble yourself, the more grand and glorious the world becomes and even God becomes bigger to you. To humble Paul was God's counterintuitive blessing to him, his gift to him. It's the path to the true oil lamp of joy which burns the eternal fuel of God's grace rather than the temporary worldly joy which is really just the burning fuse on a stick of dynamite. God is after our humility more than our happiness because he knows only humility can lead to true happiness. And this brings us back around full circle to the perspective that loves God and loves the fact that God is in charge rather than us. You must start reading the story of your life like Christ is the main character rather than you. Let me say that again because it's so key to stripping us of our entitlement, which is the nemesis of our contentment. And if you wish to defeat that foe, you must start reading your story and every chapter and scene in that story like Christ is the main character rather than you. This is why Paul said in our text, for the sake of Christ, I am content with all these things. When we humble ourselves, we can trust that some, in, in someone who's greater than ourselves. Jesus once told a parable that runs so counter to how most of us naturally think and feel and judge that we really need to take time to reflect on it and, and internalize it. It's a teaching that my own flesh wants to suppress. Let me read the whole thing to you just as Jesus said it. Listen closely. You need to hear this. 
He said, A master of a house went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go to the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard called his foreman, said, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And so when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have burned the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. When we are discontent and we want to grumble, we need to hear the words of the master in this parable. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Who do you belong to? Who do your things belong to? Your money, your children, your body, your time. God says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Can you let God be God? Can you rejoice in him being God and not you? Even if it confronts your conception of fairness. This parable reminds me of a study I heard about uh, modern so sociologists and psychologists. They love to do studies that tell us things we've known for a long time. And uh, Lori Santos teaches the famous Yale University class on happiness. And she says that given a choice of a higher or lower salary, a surprising number of people choose the lower salary if it means they'll be richer than those around them. She says money doesn't make us happier, but making more relative to other people often does. This is exactly what C.S. Lewis said in his chapter on pride in mere Christianity. He said pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next guy. And we're so corrupted with <laughs> this leprosy that we don't even realize how much of our discontent is caused by this sideways glance. And we need to radically reorient to look upward. Whether our pride manifests itself as arrogance, looking down on those around us, or as entitlement, frustratedly looking around at those around us, and beside us, either way, looking down or looking beside, we miss what's above us. The glorious truth of God. This is what the psalmist said in 70, Psalm 73. He said, I stumbled because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. 
It was his Godward perspective that resolved his envious discontentment. The Apostle Peter tells us, therefore, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because he wants to exalt you. But in his timing and in his way, because he cares for you. And so you take all your anxieties and you throw them on his infinitely capable shoulders. And when you do this, you can finally be content. Because he is sufficient for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ humbles the Christian in order to exalt him. Because what have you earned? Death. The wages of sin is death. But what have you received? Eternal life. This gospel truth frames our entire existence. He has shown us he is a generous God by sending his own son. He has shown us how much he cares for you by nailing your sin to the cross on him. He has proven that he restores a hundredfold when he raised him from the dead. He is a good God. And so it is good to live like he is God. Like the psalmist, enter this sanctuary of gospel truth and let it settle your, and cleanse your soul from its discontentment and instead be filled with joy and peace in believing. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, I do pray that you would fill us with joy and peace in believing that our lives would be framed by the truth of the gospel, that you are so generous and good, that you care for us, that you want to exalt us at the proper time. So may we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and love that mighty hand, trust in that mighty hand, that it's much mightier than our hand. And may you fill us not just with resignation to our situation, but fill us with joy in all that you've given us to live and steward for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.